Fact Checker Podcast, where we check the facts, and just the facts. I'm Erin Jordan, the Gazette's investigative reporter. I'll let the rest of the team introduce themselves. I'm Michaela Ram, healthcare reporter. I'm Molly Duffy. I cover education. I'm Brian Morelli. I cover City Hall in Cedar Rapids. So today we uh, have a fact check about a state senator. And, um, you know, if any of, them, any of you listeners have been tuning in to the fact checker, um, our written pieces for any period of time, you've realized that we bounce around. We do, you know, presidential candidates. Uh, we do uh, our Congress, folks in Congress, our state senators, and sometimes dip into more state lawmakers and even local officials. So the claim that we're checking today is from um, a newsletter, a weekly newsletter sent out by Senator Dan Zumbach um, from Ryan. He's a Republican from Ryan. Um, And a lot of the senators send out newsletters once a week, just kind of informing their constituents about the issues of the week, um, specific bills they want to highlight, uh, who they've met with during the week. Maybe if there were, you know, a group of 4-H kids or something who came to the state house, they'll talk about those sorts of things. So in Zumbach's February 14th um, newsletter, he talked about Senate File 2366. So, um, and this is the statement that we are looking at. Another bill implements work requirements for able-bodied recipients of taxpayer-funded health care. It also updates state law to conform to the change in work requirements for food assistance required by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Work requirements for food assistance have a track record of success. So it's particularly that last sentence that the fact checker wanted to look at. Um, Work requirements for food assistance have a track record of success. Um, We hear track record and we think, well, what is the track record? Um, This was a claim, and we'll probably get into this here in our conversation with the group, that we were debating about whether to check because it's it's somewhat subjective. After all, you know, how do you look at like success? Um, how do you determine whether something is su- successful? But I thought, you know, if there's data out there kind of showing what happened after these work requirements went into place, that would be something that we could look at. So I messaged um, Senator Zumbach and asked him for his sourcing. He sent us a link to a 2018 Wall Street Journal article that um, explores a little bit what happened in Wisconsin after they started requiring food stamp recipients without kids to work 20 hours a week um, and get some job training. So I guess I'll just go into what we found, what he, what that, what that article showed. So after Wisconsin implemented that practice in 2015, Um, The Wall Street Journal reported uh, some 25,000 food stamp recipients entered the job market. Another 86,000 either lost their benefits after failing to meet the new requirement or no longer needed government assistance. So from Zumbach's perspective, Wisconsin and Iowa are similar in that they need employees. They've got really low unemployment rates and, you know, encouraging people to get back into the workforce is a good thing. So he saw that 25,000 food stamp recipients entering the job market as being a measure of success. Um, We also looked at some other data, um, some estimates that say um, with some of these new requirements for the USDA's food stamp program, that there would be something like 68, or I'm sorry, 680,000 people would lose access to food stamps because of these changes. 
So these are some of the numbers we're looking at here. I guess I'll just throw it out to the team. You know, did you guys find these numbers compelling? Do you think it's an adequate track record of success? What do you think about that? I I guess I I wonder how um, how you define success. What is the purpose of the program? Is the purpose, I mean, just to get people into the workforce? Is there a feeling that there's people on receiving food assistance uh, that shouldn't be? You know, so I, I think it, some of it depends on how you, you know, kind of what the goal is. It seems clear that the goal of the food assistance program is to help hungry people. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's, that's, that's why the program was originated, to help families have enough to eat. Um, but I guess this yeah. work requirement. So is the work requirement specifically just to get people in into the workforce? Uh, is it, I mean, because also in here you kind of talk a little bit about some of the other requirements, like the USDA requirements uh, for people to be working. I mean, so is it, is the work requirement strictly just a, an, kind of an encouragement to get people working, or is it also kind of a checks and balance to, to ensure people aren't just, you know, taking food assistance when they could be, you know, doing other things as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm certain that's what the work requirements are for, just to make sure if people, you know, because this is a very expensive um, program that the government sponsors and they want to make sure that people who are receiving these benefits are doing everything they can to kind of stand on their own two feet, I would guess. Um, you know, Michaela, you've probably touched on this a little bit, like with the Medicaid recipients. Like, what do you think the purpose of that is, the work requirement? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Brian kind of alluded to that. Um, it's sort of been pitched as a way to yeah, sort of maybe be a check and balance system to the program. And I mean, sort of kind of combat, you know, the idea that maybe people are using this program who have other options or have the capability to utilize other programs or other health insurance, maybe through jobs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and obviously that has received a lot of pushback um, from individuals who believe, you know, they're on Medicaid for a reason. They should they should get that without, they've already met the requirements for Medicaid. They shouldn't have to, you know, meet these other requirements. And I'm assuming there's been a lot of pushback, too, for, for this proposal. Um, I'm curious for kind of switching gears a little bit, but in the, you know, you, you referenced the Wall Street Journal article that talks about, you know, 86,000 lost their benefits after failing to meet new requirements or no longer needed government assistance. Um, so do you have a sense of how many people, you know, of that 86,000 were either failing to meet those new requirements or no longer needed to? Do you have an idea of the portion? I don't. Um, the article did not explore that, but perhaps I could go back and see if maybe there's some Wisconsin data that they didn't you know, maybe there is some sort of breakout there that um, that we could look at. My yeah. guess is they would have separated those if they had it, but maybe not. Yeah. I mean, if people just go off food stamps, you don't always know why, you okay. know, I'm guessing. Yeah, because, I mean, when you say no longer needed government assistance, or they say, excuse me, I'm, I'm assuming that doesn't apply to those who, who got a job. Um, I guess I'm, I'm tr curious what the other reasons are why they would no longer need that assistance too. Maybe they just kind of fell off of it or, um, 
you know, some other, you know, assistance came through that they could rely on instead. I'm not sure. I'd be curious to know that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Molly. Oh, I was just going to say, I read the $86,000 number just as that's the number of people who kind of fell off of the program. Right. Um, Okay. And I, yeah, I think when people leave the program, it's hard to know. Did they leave because their situation improved or did they just leave because it became too taxing to get assistance? Hmm. Yeah, and that seems to be what this Wall Street Journal article is pointing to, um, that it, it, you know, with these new work requirements became too hard to get this assistance. And you point to uh, one 50-year-old woman who failed to meet the job requirements and lost her food stamps and is now homeless, quote. Um, I'm curious if that was sort of an outlier trend, or is was that an outlier situation, or was that a trend? Um, I'm curious if that was pretty common, or if that um, this one individual sort of had a lot of circumstances stacked up against them. And this was sort of the icing on the cake. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as we know from being journalists, I mean, it's hard sometimes to find someone to go on the record about their their needs, you know, whether right. they need to be on food assistance. And this was a woman that the, um, the journal had spoken with and was kind of sharing her situation. So obviously just kind of an anecdote, but it you know, who knows how many other people there are out there in that situation. Um, you know, one thing I probably should have talked a little bit about, too, is so this is all one of the things that Senator Zumbach said is that this bill in the Iowa State House would um, have Iowa, the state's law conform to a change in work requirements. So one of the things that's changing, so the USDA, the Food Assistance Program, already requires able-bodied adults ages 18 to 49 who don't have kids to work at least 20 hours a week for more than three months over a three-year period. So it's a lot of conditionals there. But um, So a new rule that would go into effect this April would prohibit states from waiving these requirements for these work-eligible adults without dependents. So in the past, Iowa and a lot of other states would waive some groups from this requirement. And um, what this bill at the State House would do, Senate File 2366, is prohibit Iowa from, from these waivers. Um, so that, that's kind of a change that's happening this spring. And so this bill would, would you know, that's what he's talking about, having it conform with this federal change. Um, so, you know, and the, so the USDA has estimated this change that goes to into, into effect April 1st would um, cause about 680,000 people across the United States to lose access to food stamps. Um, and in Iowa, about 320,000 people rely on food assistance. We don't know specifically how many people would be affected in Iowa, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think DHS has put out those numbers, but I can double check. One thing I was a little tripped up on, and I'm not sure if you, when uh, we were talking about the USDA requirements, it says um, you have to work at least 20 hours a week for more than three months over a three-year period. Does that mean... Like, for example, if I worked January, February, March, and April, that would be more than three months that I would be covered for three yes, years? Yes, that's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. Or so, say you work sporadically, you know. I don't know that it has to be three months in a row, but it could be that you're trying to find work and that you're working when you can. 
Okay. Do we know if the the law in Iowa is basic, the, the proposal in Iowa, Senate file 2366, is that intended to kind of beef up the work requirement beyond what the USDA is? No. I mean, it's just trying to say that Iowa can't issue these waivers okay. for specific groups of people. But it would require, it would, um, it would be a requirement for some Medicaid recipients. Does yes. It, okay. Yeah. I mean, this check specifically focuses on, you know, the track record of success for food assistance. But within this piece of legislation, there are also are work requirements for Medicaid mm. mm-hmm. recipients. Okay. And what are some of the groups that would be receiving waivers? Do we know that? Um, I don't know in the past who has. It's... I can try to find out more about that. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's also one of the things that's been raised, particularly on the, well, on both fronts, but is just the additional cost to the state of having employees to verify all these work hours. You know, hmm. how are you checking are you calling the employer that someone's listed on their form and saying did you know Sarah Smith come in on this time and did she work 20 hours a week and um, whether that will be beneficial you know mm-hmm. overall will we will the state if the state saves money um, on providing less food assistance because not everyone is can fulfill the work requirement, are we then spending that money on the employment verification? Yeah. So essentially saving money because people aren't getting that food assistance. They're falling off the program. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, kind of goes back to the larger question that I think we've sort of been skirting around, but, like, how do you define the success? Is, is falling off the program a successful move or, um, you know, is the fact that people do find jobs through this program, through these work requirements, a success too? Um, yeah, it's almost like a philosophical question. Right, yeah. Like, like 25,000 people fell off, or no, sorry, 25,000 people entered the Wisconsin job market, but 86,000, which is you know more than three times as many people, just sort of disappeared, and we don't know if if they were earning their own money and didn't need food assistance or if they just continued to need food assistance and stopped getting it. So like, yeah. but which group of people do you... Right. Is that is the one, is the example of the woman who became homeless, is that reflective of a, you know, are there a lot more people like that or is that just sort of a, you know, just one example? And, right. you know, is that because she lost her food assistance or, or are there other factors? Right. You know, it's just kind of hard to know. Yeah, but at the same time, those 25,000 people who, you know, entered the job market, are they entering permanent jobs? Are they, do they have really full-time stable jobs? They have insurance. They're really kind of, they will no longer need food stamp um, program to sustain themselves. Um, but yeah, at the same time, how do you weigh that compared to those people who, who didn't, you know, successfully accomplish that? Um, yeah. So could you talk, Erin, about what grade you did land on and why? Yeah, I, um, I was kind of looking at the, what measures of success that you guys have talked about. So, um, you know, it, it has been an issue in the state. There's all sorts of task force, 
tasks task forces force, <laughs> forces to um, um, look at just the um, employment issues in the state. You know, having enough employees to fill all these in demand jobs, and um, you know, I don't know if that's a legitimate thing to be measuring success or if it's kind of a red herring in this argument. You know, I mean, is that is are those um, folks who got the jobs? those 25,000 in Wisconsin who got jobs, are they filling the in-demand jobs that are needed that, you know, we, that the sector has talked about needing? It, for them, it, it might be great. For those 25,000 people, maybe this is like the first step toward something better for them. Um, and if you just were looking at that, okay, maybe that would be a measure of success, but it's not occurring in a vacuum. Um, and I think when you compare that with the other side um, of the scale with 86,000 people going off the program, if they needed the program before, I have a hard time imagining that, that somehow that need they had for food assistance has gone away. And so those would be more people going to food banks, more people, um, you know, potentially having to say, well, I can either buy my medicine or I can buy food for this week. You know, there's a lot of community programs where kids who are, you know, hungry get um, backpacks of food to come home on Fridays. You know, I, I see that that would cause more of those sorts of, of needs in the community. And then, you know, there's also the effects that might cascade from that if we're looking at more homelessness, like if someone's trying to choose between food and rent and, and maybe the rent doesn't get paid and then they get evicted. Well, then that becomes a cost on the community as well. You know, Brian, you've written about um, just the things that the city has done to kind of help the homeless community here. And we've all kind of heard about that in bigger cities around the country. So I think there could be collateral costs if all you're looking at is just, you know, dollars and cents, not to mention the human costs of people not having food. Um, so I guess my... My um, grade that I gave him um, was a D. I felt like, although he may measure success based on those folks that got jobs, um, the, the other factors made it um, mostly false. Because I felt like there was a, I would give, not give him an F because, you know, if you're looking just at the, um, the measure that he was using, okay, Fair enough, but um, I, I do feel like it's more false than it is true. These are all looking, <laughs> nodding your heads, deep thoughts. What do you think? This was a tough one. I don't know. <laughs> I think I agree with you. When you look at the total picture, it doesn't seem like just adding a work requirement is actually getting to the root of the problem. It's almost just kind of shifting it over like away from the state budget and on to, to other groups. Um, and yeah, I think to me that that 26,000 to 86, or 25,000 to 86,000, um, yeah, the skills are so tipped there. I think I'm okay with a D. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I also kind of looked at it as, you know, the statement was sort of made without context. Um, it was sort of like, yes, it's been successful, but not sort of noting those other caveats. Um, yeah, granted, like, it kind of depends on how you define success. But um, yeah, I agree. It does seem to, you know, just be shifting the problem elsewhere and, you know, causing 
it, it could potentially cause long-term outcomes, which may lead to us, you know, having another conversation about expanding um, food assistance programs and, and what that may mean. So, I mean, it, again, it, yeah, it just seems to be shifting that down the line. So I would agree with that grade. Um, one thing I wanted to add is that um, Ryan, Iowa, I was kind of very curious about where that is. It's uh, between Central City and Manchester, and it's a town of 360 people. So, and it has, a shamrock. <laughs> it has a shamrock on its water tower. I oh. did not know that, mm-hmm. but I've actually driven. It's right on Highway 13, so probably a lot of people have driven through Ryan. <laughs> didn't realize. Yeah. Um, so, I guess I I'm I don't think this is a, a, a slam dunk uh, to say it's success. Uh, success. Um, I agree with a lot of what what you all have said. Um, I don't think that, uh, I, I think the number of 25,000 people entering the workforce is, I, I don't think that's insignificant number. I think that's, um, uh, you know, that's an uh, important uh, accomplishment for the program. Um, I also, um, you know, if, if part of the, the point of this is to tighten up who's getting requirements and 86,000 people are no longer receiving benefits. Um, you know, I guess I, I just wonder if maybe some of them, um, you know, shouldn't have been receiving benefits. Um, at the same time, I, I do, uh, you know, agree that probably if pushing, there, there's probably plenty of people within that number who are truly in need and are going to be pushed on to other services. So from that perspective, I think calling it a success would be um, false. So um, I come, my, my preference would be, or my thought would be a C, but I could support a D. I do wonder, I mean, since we know that um, Zumbox, he says he considers work requirements a success because they pushed thousands of people into the workforce, if we know that that's how he measures success, and that is true, does that earn him anything? That gets us back to the whole subjective nature yeah. of this claim. Right. I think, but yeah, and I, I mean, it, it counts for something, but I don't think you get to kind of throw something out into the public sphere and say, here's how, you, you know, my definition is the only one that matters because, you know, everyone who reads it might mm-hmm. interpret it a different way. And so I think our job is to... It might to kind of cut through some of that. Well, and he did not say in his newsletter that this was how he was measuring success. Right. Sure. Which which could have changed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was just in kind of the follow-up email, mm-hmm. which I appreciated the additional context, but... Um, yeah, like if he, if he had said, um, you know, we need, uh, you know, if he had said, uh, you know, I, I am passing this law because it's going to get more people into the workforce and in that sense it's a success, you know, it's been a success elsewhere, then that would probably be true. But he didn't say that. Yeah. Or even if we had some measurement of long term, like what does this look like in ten years? Um, and if we have an idea of what that could be, then then yeah, I don't I don't know. I wonder, um, Aaron, if maybe there are any um, if there's any research um, on work requirements like I feel like there must be a university somewhere that's studying this and maybe they could 
maybe just having something like that weigh in and say, here's the overall effect. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of the groups that are studying it are from a, an anti-poverty perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's hard to uh, find kind of that, you know, because they're all looking at it as these are people who are in need and here's what you're going to do. You know, I think the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has mm -hmm. provided some data. Their, um, their study is all is more about... Uh, this broad-based um, uh, eligibility waiver that, uh, so this legislation in Iowa initially uh, would have taken Iowa out of the, the ability to do these categorical um, waivers, these broad-based waivers. And, but the um, revision, when that bill moved from a study bill to um, a Senate file, that part of it was taken out. So I was looking initially at that Robert Wood Johnson um, data because I was like, oh, this specifically mentions Iowa, but then that wasn't really relevant anymore now that they've made this requirement just more general that like you can't have the, just these waivers, but it's not talking about this categorical eligibility. Mm -hmm. But I'll look. I mean, I can see if there's... I think even if it's, if it's from a group that has an ideological bend, if we just mm -hmm. spell that out and then people can kind of read into it what they want to read into it... Mm -hmm. um, I just think that might round it out a little bit more. Okay. One question. Um, did when you were communicating with uh, Dan Zumba, did he have any response to the 86,000 people who had been kind of pushed out of the program? I didn't go back to him because usually that's not our practice to kind of like go back Okay, and so forth. he did, but he, he didn't wait yeah, on that at all? Yeah, he did not respond to that aspect of it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, and do we have, um, I had this question too, um, do we know where the bill lives at at this point? Did it make it out of committee or? Um, it is still live. Um, it made it out of funnel last week and um, yeah, it's still still kicking. Okay. <laughs> um, well, what do we think? I mean, C or D, I mean... I do any of the, the additional information that you guys would like to see if if it does dramatically change it I mean we could always reconfigure but if it's just kind of providing supporting material um, for this do we are we comfortable with the D do we want to go with the C I mean I'm comfortable with the D um, I know this is you know different, but just based on the reading I've done on Medicaid work requirements, I don't think this will necessarily change the context of what we discussed or sort of the impact on those who fall off the program. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable with that grade just because, I mean, even if it is kind of a subjective definition, um, it does kind of leave out some of that important context. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I, yeah, everything that Michaela said. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I and I guess, uh, you know, I can support a D. I think it's not, I guess my preference would be a C, just because I don't think it, I, I do think there's kind of, you know, different ways to look at it, um, but I can support a D, so. Okay. All right, well, we'll go with that. Um, but I'm going to, I'll follow up with the team just with, you know, some of these additional 
um, bits of information you're seeing if we could flesh out and uh, um, you know see if that changes the overall picture but I mean I based on the stuff that I was looking at online it seems like it wouldn't but you know I'll I'll peel that back a little bit and see if there's any more there there may be a part two to this episode. Who knows? <laughs> Teaser. Teaser. <laughs> so speaking of that, we do have in mind a claim for, for next week. Michaela, I don't know if you want to speak to that. Sure. Yeah, I can talk about that a bit. Um, so there has been a TV ad that has been airing in Cedar Rapids and Des Moines. Um, it was initially airing this fall, kind of in the midst of the caucus season, and has now been relaunched for the spring. Um from a healthcare advocacy organization that is really talking about prescription drug costs. And one of the checks where I'm looking into, and, and I do have the source material for that, so we should be good to go for that, um, is about whether Republican-sponsored plans really don't support uh, efforts to decrease drug costs. So I will be taking a look at that, and hopefully we'll have a good idea of what, um, you know, what that's true, kind of where they're coming from in that um, I, 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 granted, I haven't done a, the research yet, but it, it should be an interesting one, so I will keep you all posted. And Tom Miller, our attorney general, has some connection with this, right? Yeah, so when they relaunched this ad, um, they had a press conference over at the Cedar Rapids Public Library to sort of, you know, call for federal efforts to lower drug costs, and, and it really had to do with um, Medicare. So uh, there's a, a law that doesn't allow Medicare to really negotiate drug costs with the company. So, and, and he, that was really um, him taking a stance and saying, you know, we need to change this law. We need an effort to lower costs for our consumers. And this is really a lot of what that ad touches on is whether that law has an impact and whether that law um, is really a Republican-sponsored effort or not. So uh, I think that's really kind of where his, his hands are in that game. Okay. Well, great. Well, we will look forward to talking about that next week. And, you know, drug prices are always a <laughs> it feels interesting like, topic. I, th I think we've checked like two or three different ads on drug costs. So it's definitely a big conversation this year, not just, and even outside of the presidential, you know, um, election years, it's kind of been interesting to see other politicians take a stance on this. Well, it's something that our can, our readers at the Gazette care about. I yeah. feel like every time an article runs like this, someone writes and talks about this prescription or that prescription that they're on and yeah. how it costs an exorbitant amount or right. how the amount went up or down dramatically with some change. Yeah, and they, they certainly notice it too whenever they, they go to CVS or Walgreens and suddenly it's you know much more expensive than what it was last time that they went. Um, and it's certainly... It's something a lot of um, health system and doctor's offices are talking about, too, just because that impacts them. You know, if their patient isn't taking the drug they need, then, you know, their care is sort of obsolete and doesn't really have an impact. So, yeah, it's certainly going to be important in the next coming months. All right. Well, I, I'll, I'll wrap it up here, but I wanted to just close with a couple details here. So the Fact Checker podcast is produced by Stephen Colbert, and our music is Lobby Time by Kevin McLeod. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. I'm sad, Brian. <laughs> I thought you were going to leap in there and just like, fact check you later. <laughs> Maybe next time. We'll see if people are missing it. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcast.
Podcasts.